Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you here on Christmas Eve. We thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you've joined us once again in this busy time of year. Before we go to God's Word, I'm going to pray one more time and ask for God to help us and be with us in a proclaiming, hearing, and Lord willing, doing of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would meet with us, that you would be with us in this time in your word, that you would use your word, O Lord, to convict us, to correct us, to change us, so that we would look more like your son, Jesus, as a result. We ask in his name, amen. Amen. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. These relatable words were spoken by none other than the theologian Charlie Brown in A Charlie Brown Christmas. In this classic film, Charlie Brown feels down, he's frustrated, feels isolated, struggles to get into the Christmas spirit. He's frustrated and annoyed with all the materialism of it all, found himself on the outside looking into everybody else's joy and happiness. Was Charlie Brown crazy? Or is there some truth to how he was feeling in that season? I think some of us might be feeling similar this morning. We have lots of children here, and I'm sure all the kids are excited about Christmas. And I'm sure their parents are all tired. We have travelers who are in town who are happy to be with loved ones for a bit of time. We have those who are reminded this time of year how lonely it can be. We have those who have a full house who can't wait for their lovely guests to leave so they can have their house back again. Don't worry, mom, I'm not talking about me. We have others who still haven't gotten into the Christmas spirit yet and just want it all to be quickly over and done with. Those who are overjoyed, those who can't find their joy, they're overwhelmed. Or maybe you feel like you've outgrown this whole Christmas stage. Like it's just for kids and for those who have kids. Or it's for those who have their family nearby, right? And if that doesn't apply to you, then what's the use? Brian Jay, in his article, Who Gets to Celebrate Christmas, thank you again, George Fleishan, for sending me that article, he argues that there's actually two different kinds of Christmases. There's a secular version or a worldly version, and there's the Christian version. And the Christian version seems like it would be the more exclusive one, right? But he argues, actually, it's the secular version, the secular Christmas with all of its assents and all of its demands, that's actually more exclusive, that actually leaves more people out in the cold. Here's what he writes. He says, there are two competing stories of Christmas. The Christian one that welcomes everyone without precondition, though not everyone assents to the solution it proclaims. There's the secular one that provides compelling solutions 
but there are a number of unachievable preconditions one must first complete. The former, an unwanted gift, a free gift of grace that many send back to the store on December 26th. The latter, in essence, is an achievement celebrated only by those whose holiday hustle aligns with their providential life circumstances. So what Christmas will you be celebrating tomorrow? Or in the words of Charlie Brown, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? With that in mind, please meet me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles that are provided, that's on page 807, the very first page of the New Testament. We would love for you to take that Bible home if you don't have a Bible of your own as our gift to you, but you can have a copy of God's Word. And today we're picking up from where our brother Jonathan Lehman so helpfully led us through last week, through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that sermon, which you can go to our website and listen to, he showed us the fact that since Jesus was born, God's people are no longer determined by family history or nation or lineage, but by faith in Jesus, and that the birth of this king would actually change everything. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew goes at length to explain that this Gospel of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, that this Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that would come to his people, and that he was also the king, which is why he begins the Gospel of Matthew with these words. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's Matthew 1.1. And this child would be the son of David, meaning that one of his descendants, as one of his descendants, he would be worthy to sit on the throne. And this child would also be the son of Abraham, the one who would fully and completely fulfill the promise of God to bless God's people. But how would this blessing come about and come to be and come to this world? And what should any of this matter to us during this Christmas season? Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is God's word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. 
and he called his name Jesus. This is the main idea of our time together in God's word. Jesus was born of God for our salvation and to be with us. Jesus was born of God for our salvation and to be with us. And we'll divide the time going through those three categories in three points. So point one, Jesus was born of God. Once again, Matthew begins this gospel by calling Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. And using these two pillars of the faith, this will provide the legitimate foundation for the claims of Jesus to be not only the king, but the Messiah. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, for example, the Lord makes a covenant with David that one of his sons would sit on his throne and his kingdom would endure forever and ever. Or in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Kids in the room, what was the covenant that God made with Abraham? What did he tell him? Anybody remember? Yes? That he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, right? You're exactly right. He would give them all these descendants and that he would go to spread his name. But David's son, Solomon, eventually died. So what happened to the enduring kingdom? And Abraham had two sons. One of them was legitimate. The other, eh, there's a funny story about that. So that means that the Lord must have meant a lot more in making those covenants. And he meant that Jesus would actually fulfill both of those covenants. The covenant that he made with David and the covenant that he made with Abraham. And that Jesus would be the greater David who would rule with righteousness and who would sit on the throne forever and ever. And that Jesus would be the greater Abraham who would gather disciples from all nations through faith in him. But to do this, Jesus had to be born. Born like we've been born. But then again, not born like we've been born. He was born not because of the will of man, but Jesus was born of God. And the baby in Bethlehem is the creator of all things. The one who would fill the womb of Mary is the one that fills the earth with his glory. And in the incarnation, the infinite God became an infant for us. Here's how St. Augustine puts it. He says, man's maker was made man so that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger that the fountain might thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth be accused of bearing false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on the wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. 
it's impossible for us to fully grasp and comprehend the glorious mystery of Jesus coming to this world for us in the flesh. But during this season, we get to marvel at it and stare at the incarnation in a more extended way. And as J.I. Packer says, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound, unfathomable depths of the Christmas revelation lie. God became man. And nothing in all of fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Christian, if you are struggling today with sin or with shame or with doubt, allow the incarnation to be an invitation for you to go directly to Jesus with your sin, with your shame, and with your doubt. God became man so that you and I can approach God. And Jesus, being born in the flesh, did not take off his divinity. He put on humanity. The eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt in with us. He was born a child, but yet he was still a king, as we sing about in this time of year. What's interesting about this whole narrative of the birth of Christ is that while some might find it hard to believe that Jesus came to this world and Jesus was king, you know who didn't have a hard time believing that? King Herod. Which is why King Herod, if you read Matthew chapter 2, was very threatened at the coming of this king. And he did what other kings have done throughout history when they feel threatened. He tried to eliminate the competition. Eliminate the opposition. But Matthew chapter 2 ends not with the death of King Jesus, but actually with the death of Herod. Because the Lord truly removes and appoints kings as he wills. So Matthew explains that this King Jesus, though he's in this genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, he was not begotten from Joseph or Mary but really from God. He was not born of them, but he was born to them. And while Mary plays a prominent role in Luke's narrative, Matthew puts the spotlight more on Joseph. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 once again, where it talks about this birth of Jesus. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with, to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame. And he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, to be engaged in that time period meant a lot more than it means for us in this time period. That meant that their marriage was basically bound already. And the only thing left to do at that point was to live together and to consummate their marriage. That was the only thing that would have been lacking at that point. But Mary was found to be pregnant before they came together, as it says in verse 18. And it says that she was with child from, not some other man, but the Holy Spirit. So this was God's doing. It was not the result of some scandal as you have elsewhere in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, leading up from verses 1 through 17? No, this was actually the doing of God. 
Mary had a miraculous pregnancy, just like her cousin Elizabeth did. But it was miraculous not because of her age, but it was because she was a virgin. She had never known a man intimately, and yet she was pregnant. So imagine this. Mary and Joseph are engaged. Joseph is completing his plans to prepare a place for Mary, their family, and their future so they can start their lives together. And then she has some news for Joseph that she's expecting. Imagine Joseph's confusion at this. Imagine his frustration with all of the hopes that he would have had for their marriage now seems to be quickly shattered. And then she tells him, I haven't been unfaithful, but she tells him that she's been visited by an angel who told her exactly what happened, and that she would actually conceive and give birth to the king of kings, the son of God. Now, that would have been unbelievable, right? I wonder if you're here, even as a Christian, you struggle to believe in the virgin birth. Maybe you think the virgin birth is an element of the Christian faith that you can kind of take or leave. But Jesus being born to Mary meant that he would be like the us, born like us, that he would live in this world like us, so that he could be our sympathetic high priest, so that he could understand what it is to live like in this fallen world. But if he were just born of Joseph or some other man, he would have been born with a sin nature, like us, and that would have not done us any good when he gave his life for us. But that wasn't the case. Jesus was truly God and truly man. This is not just an add-on to our faith. This is essential to our faith. That's why it says in the Nicene Creed about Jesus, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. But Joseph didn't have the Nicene Creed, did he? At this point, all he had was a pregnant wife-to-be, and he didn't know how it happened. So Joseph would have been confused at best, suspicious at worst, he would have likely suspected that Mary had committed adultery, which, again, because their marriage was considered as bound at that point, would have been considered as adultery, should she have been pregnant from another man, which is why the text says he, he sought to divorce her quietly. In this very communal culture that they would have lived in, and also in this very little town of Bethlehem that they would have known people in, this wouldn't have been a secret for very long. This would have been a scandal. This would have resulted in Mary's shame. But the text says that Joseph was a just man. Now, he didn't want Mary to be publicly shamed. So he decided to divorce her quietly. Probably thinking something like, well, if an angel told her that, that angel's going to have to tell me that. And then the angel does tell him that. The Lord sent an angel to Joseph to tell him this news. 
And the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him exactly what happens and what he should do. And if you know the rest of the, the birth narrative, you know that this angel comes to Joseph two separate times in Matthew chapter 2. And each of the three times, Joseph responds with full obedience. Look at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, He considered these things. Behold, an angel appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph woke from this dream. He did exactly what the angel said. Why do you think he was so quick to obey this angel? Well, maybe because angels don't come to us in dreams every day. That could be part of it. But I think it's because since Joseph was a just man, he knew the Lord, he knew the Lord's word, he had to believe that this was really from God. I think that's why you have this insertion of verses 22 and 23 about this baby being born to fulfill scripture. If Joseph was a just man, he would have, knew, he would have known God's word. He would have known that this could possibly be the fulfillment of Scripture. He would have therefore trusted in God's promises enough to take the next step, to take Mary as his wife. Brothers and sisters, are you trusting in the promises of God this morning? Does your faith in him, keeping his word, give you confidence to obey him today, even if you don't immediately see the promises fulfilled? I mean, just think about it. Joseph didn't know how everything would play out. The next thing he had to do was simply to take Mary as his bride. And he did. And he trusted her word. Everything else he would have to eventually see unfold. But he knew just enough to take the next step of faith because he trusted God. And if you're struggling with your faith this morning, I would encourage you to spend some time today to reflect on God's promises and let that fuel your faith and confidence in him to take not the next 10 steps, but the very next steps of obedience today. Joseph was given the task of being the earthly father of Jesus, which meant that he would have had the responsibility to name Jesus as, as boys in this time would have been named on their eighth on the eighth day after their birth, on the day of their circumcision. And normally there would have been named a family name, right? Someone important who lived in the family. Luke 1, for example, you have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you have the trouble that he faced because he was supposed to name the child John. And the big issue there was that there's nobody in our family with that name. Why would you name him that? But the angel makes clear here to Joseph that he shall give him a specific name because his name had a purpose. He said, you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, in naming Jesus, accepted the role of, this, of being this earthly father of Jesus. 
And while God adopts us into his family by faith, marvel at the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be adopted into Joseph's family, to be brought into that genealogy. Jesus would come to this world and he would call Joseph his dad so that those of us who go to him by faith could call God our eternal father. And this is why Matthew makes it so painfully clear that Mary and Joseph did not consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Think about it. Why include those details? Why say in verse 18 that this was before they came together? Or in verse 25, that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Matthew wanted it abundantly clear that this was not some strange cover-up, but that Jesus was really born of God. And though Jesus would be his earthly father, that the true father of this child would be God himself. Larry King once, asked, once was asked the question, if he could interview anyone from history, who would it be? And he said that he would want to interview Jesus. His response is the following. He said, I would ask him if he believed that he was born of a virgin birth. Because whatever the answer is, changes or reinforces the entire world. Well, if you know your Bible, you know that that interview wouldn't even be necessary because Jesus himself affirms this later on in his ministry. In John chapter 8, for example, where he says to the Pharisees, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. And this is why the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus, because Jesus was born of God, and he was sent to us for a specific purpose. He was sent to save, which leads us to point two. Jesus was born of God. Secondly, he was born for our salvation. Look again at verse 21. She shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The very meaning of the name Jesus, or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And the Lord would save his people from their sins through Jesus, the Savior. And this salvation in Jesus was long predicted in God's word. Genesis 3 speaks of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, but he would have his heel bruised in the process. And all throughout human history, as these seeds were born, there was hope that this might be the one, but that hope eventually faded over and over and over again. Abel was killed by his brother. Noah's ark brought salvation, but Noah's sin brought a lot of shame to him. Abraham received the covenant, but only had one legitimate child to show for it. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had many sons, and one of them was Joseph. And Joseph saved his family from famine, but could not save them from their sins. Moses led the captives out of Egypt, but did not lead them out of their sin. Joseph led the Israelites into the promised land, but not into God's promised rest. 
Boaz would become the kinsman redeemer, but he could not redeem God's people. King David would defeat God's enemies, but King David couldn't even defeat his own sin in his own life. And prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Malachi told of what the Lord would do eventually, but none of them would do it themselves. Generations came and went, and God's people were still on the lookout for this seed of the woman. You can almost hear them crying out, How long, O Lord? When will you bring salvation to your people? But the incarnation reminds us that God is a God who always keeps his promises to his people. Because Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And in Jesus, the Lord will make good on this promise to send salvation to his people, not through prophets, not through priests, not through kings, but through Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He would bring his righteous son into the world to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus would live and declare the very words of God as the word of God. Jesus would heal and comfort the poor, the sick, and the afflicted. Jesus would be hung up on a cross and have the words king of the Jews hanging over him. The babe in the manger in Bethlehem would eventually be the man who hung on the cross. And the king of kings would adorn a crown of thorns on his head as he took the sins of the world. And yes, this seed, like the other seeds, would eventually die. He died on the cross. But this seed brought life through his death. And his death was to ransom and save his people. He died, but then he rose victoriously on the third day, defeating death forever, and he is enthroned in heaven forever right now. Is what Calvin says about our Redeemer. He says there's another reason why it's necessary for him who was to be our Redeemer to be true God and man. It was his task to swallow death. Who could do that but life itself? It was his task to conquer sin. Who could do that but righteousness? It was his task to overcome the powers of the air. Who could do that but a power greater than the world or the air? In whom then do life, righteousness, and the power of heaven reside but in God alone? Therefore the Lord in his great kindness became our redeemer when he chose to ransom us. Brothers and sisters, never was a more fitting name given to any child. Jesus, this child, would come to save his people from their sins, and he's still saving people today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be brought into God's family today by faith through his finished work on the cross. Your sin, just like my sin, demands a payment, but Jesus came already and he paid the debt in full. He allows you in on that payment if you would turn from your sin and turn to him by faith today. That's you. We love to talk to you after our time together this morning. You can talk to me or many others around you who would love to walk you through 
how you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For my brothers and sisters in the room, if you're struggling with being overwhelmed in this Christmas season, you're burdened by by gift-giving and gift-wrapping and cooking, or you're lonely or you're sad, please remember that Christmas is also for you because Christ came for you. Jesus came to give you the gift of rest so you can go to him when you're weary. Jesus came to lift your burdens so that you can have his burdens, which are light. Jesus came to free you from your sins that you are ashamed of. Jesus came to give you hope even in the midst of suffering, not once your season of suffering is over. Jesus came so that you and I could go to him over and over and over again. If you find yourself overwhelmed in this holiday season, find times between the next day and a half to slow down a bit. You know it's how long it takes Christmas to actually get here? It, takes, it seems like it takes forever to come, and then it's so quickly over with, right? The living room is filled with wrapped gifts, and then they're unwrapped in a matter of seconds, and all you have is the wrapping paper to clean up. And after debating for so long when you should start playing Christmas music or start putting up Christmas lights, they are very quickly taken down or turned off, aren't they? And even the time with our family that comes to visit us, that seems to rush by. So how can we slow down? A few suggestions. Pick up that Advent devotional that you might be behind on. Don't be discouraged. Pick it up and start with today. Or spend some time reading Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, or John chapter 1. Slowly, read it with your family. Read it with whoever you spend Christmas with and marvel at the glory of his coming. Sing Christmas songs together. Spend time in discussion and even prayer of thankfulness over Christ and his coming. For our teens in the room, if you have a friend or someone you know that's struggling during this Christmas season, think of ways that you can serve them specifically and encourage them. And we should also remember that even though Christmas comes and goes so quickly, that our Lord Jesus isn't going anywhere because he came to be with us forevermore, which leads us to point three. Jesus was born of God. Jesus was born of, for our salvation. But thirdly, Jesus was born to be with us, to be with us. Again, in the middle of this birth narrative, you have this insertion here by Matthew, which is further commentary explaining all that would have been going on, all that we may not understand because we weren't there. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, about the virgin conceiving a son and them calling him Emmanuel. This is directly from Isaiah chapter 7, which which, in which the Lord is, is talking to Ahaz, a king. And he tells him about a sign that he will be on the lookout for. It says in Isaiah 7, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be 
deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. He said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew quotes this passage because it finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since Joseph was a righteous man, he would have known God's word, and he would have took that as what he needed to obey God and to believe what the angel has spoken. Brothers and sisters, we need to know God's word. We need to know how well it fits together. And knowing God's word encourages us in our faith. Because this passage was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years before that night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born into this world. So that should give us confidence, not only in God's word, but also in the God of the word. He's trustworthy. and We can depend on him. You may also notice that in Matthew 1, 23, it says there that they shall call him Emmanuel. But then when the angel shows up, he tells Joseph to name the son, not Emmanuel, but Jesus. The name Jesus would explain his mission to save sinners. But the name Emmanuel would explain his method. He would be with them forevermore. And God has promised ever since the garden that he would be with his people And although our sin interrupted that, God's desires did not change at all because God is a God that doesn't leave his people. God was with his people even when they were slaves in Egypt. God heard their cries, he saw their affliction, and then God acted on their behalf. He was with them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He was with them even when they were exiled and reminded them of his good plans to prosper them, even if it took 70 years to happen. And God was even with his people as they waited year after year for the Messiah to show up, until he eventually did in Bethlehem to Mary to Joseph. God's people are a waiting people. And even Jesus in his ministry encouraged his followers to wait for God's plan to be fully revealed, to wait until they saw him hanging on the cross. Then they would actually understand, to wait to see him rising from the grave and ascending into heaven. And even before he went into heaven, he told them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He told them that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. And God's people today are told to wait. Why? Salvation has already come to us. But we're called to wait for full salvation, for the day when our faith will be sight, for when Jesus will come back for us and make all things right and all things new. Today we're still waiting. And while we wait, we are facing hardships and and trials and afflictions of all sorts. We struggle with sin. We struggle with burdens. 
But brothers and sisters, while we wait for the Lord to make all things right, remember that he is with his people. So as you're waiting for the Lord to heal you, as you're waiting for the Lord to mend that relationship, as you're waiting for the Lord to provide for you, wait on the Lord in faith that he keeps his promises. Jesus came to be our Emmanuel, God with us. Brothers and sisters, in case you didn't know it, those three words should not make sense because of our sin. God with us now? God with us still? God with us in spite of us? But praise God, because of his son, those words are not only possible, but they are true for God's people. Because Jesus not only gives us salvation, he offers us his presence. He gives us his peace. He gives us his provision, his mercy, his comfort, his rest, the assurance that he is with us. He's not going anywhere. If you are feeling lonely, remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. You actually are not alone. If you're suffering during this season, remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is with you in the midst of that suffering. If you're overwhelmed or burdened in this season, remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He's with you as you're discouraged. He's there to comfort you and to lift you up. Jesus is God. And Jesus is God with us. Couple points of application. Since he is with us, we can obey him in faith without knowing all of the answers, like Joseph did. We can trust him for the very last thing he told us to do, and then do that in faith while we wait for his full plans to be revealed. And church, this is especially true for us in this season, right? What should we be doing now in this midst of transition? Same thing we've been doing. Proclaiming the gospel, being faithful, loving our neighbors, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And trust that the Lord will reveal what we should do eventually in due time. He will be faithful. Our job is to be faithful to what he's called us to do. Secondly, we should remind, be reminded of the fact that since Jesus didn't love us from a distance, we should not love one another from a distance. Church, continue to love one another. Continue to look out for those who seem, who feel isolated in this season, who are alone, who are by themselves, who may not feel as loved as they should. And continue to let your love show up in tangible ways for one another. Being through that, through inviting them over, calling people up, sending a letter, showing up to their house with a meal. That love goes a long way. And that love, our witness to the world around us. Let's continue to love one another, not from a distance, but up close. At the end of a Charlie Brown Christmas, 
Charlie Brown actually got his answer to the question that he was asking. What's the true meaning of Christmas? You guys are going to almost picture it, right? Linus steps up. He says, I'm going to share it with you. Spotlight on him. And he says in so many words the following, which are the words of Scripture. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Born unto us and for us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. However you're feeling this holiday season, remember that Christmas is for you because Christ came for you, for us. He was born of God so that we could be born again. He was born into Joseph's family so that we could be brought into God's family by faith. He was born to be our salvation. He was born so that he could be with us forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for coming to us, and we pray that you would help us to go to you over and over and over again, that through your coming, we have direct access to God, your Father, by faith. Oh, Lord, help us never lose sight of that access that we have because of your great sacrifice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming of God for our salvation, and thank you, Lord, that you are with us to the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.